and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Try Altitude Performance and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Dealing with the medical world is something that takes us all outside of our comfort zone. Elizabeth, otherwise known as Strat, is no stranger to this. Her husband was diagnosed with bowel cancer at the age of 30, which is incredibly rare. And at that time, she had a one-year-old daughter and soon to be pregnant with their second child. We talk about her journey through diagnosis and treatment. We laugh and we cry and then we laugh some more. This shared experience of hospital and medical world chaos is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons Strat and I have become so close over the years. In this episode, she shares the unknown, the challenges of the waiting period, Dr. Google, which we are all so familiar with, and how she mapped her way through all of this. She shares some of the support from the local community, and this might help some of you with ideas on how you can help your friends and family members when they're going through a tough time. We all at some point in our lives will need to deal with the medical system, the diagnosis, the treatment, the doctors, the waiting period. Unfortunately, there is no rule book to guide us through these difficult times. Similar to episode three with Sarah Hales, I hope that you take away a few strategies to pop into your life's toolbox for situations when you're faced with the unknown and uncertainty. Let's get into it. Hey Strat, how was your weekend? Good, Alice. Very uh, busy, busy with, you know, kids and little ones, as as I'm sure you can imagine. Lots of playgrounds. You or Dom in the playground? <laughs> well, both of us, we did the whole, I know what you mean though, Dom does love it, he does love a playground, but no, we did lots of really nice family time, which was awesome. A few bike tracks, a few big stacks, but yes, lots of good By fun. By Molly or No, Hamish? Eva actually took a big tumble, but she was, yeah, she was attempting some pretty cool runs. I don't know what the bike terminology is, but um, yeah, she was having a real crack. So yay. Oh, well, thank you for joining us today, Strat. I've really been looking forward to this. We have been talking about podcasting. I want to say for about three years about sharing some of our experiences with the world around, we constantly are like, man, one day, one day we're going to get on the microphone and we're going to say to people, here's your one, two, three, if you're ever going through medical appointments. Absolutely. Yes. One thing we've had, we've both had lots of experience at with the medical system. Yeah. And, and one of the beautiful things is our friendship that's grown out of that, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, definitely a shared experience. Mm. And I guess when one of us, you know, it's always one of us going through something and we know we can sort of pick up the phone and that the other person gets it, mm. you know, they just get what it's like. And when we say pick up the phone, generally I'm texting you in the medical appointment whilst the doctor is talking, being like, you won't believe what they're telling me right now. I know, I know. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard that from you, you won't believe it. You won't believe it. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah. And we're definitely going to get into that. Strat, one of the questions I love asking people at the start, and it always draws out quite interesting facts, is if you were to use an animal to describe you, what animal would that be and why? It's funny because when we were talking about this previously, the first thing that popped into my head was a zebra, uh, which probably... For those that know me probably think, what? You know, because zebras are quite flashy and I'm definitely not flashy. Definitely not flashy. I'll um no. <laughs> I'll say you'll definitely back, not flashy. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think it's just I guess the complexity of the person I am. I'm really unusual and some aspects of my life are so organized and others are just so chaotic. I, I once got told that I was uh, a walking contradiction and it was meant, it was meant in a really lovely way. And I totally got that. I was like, yes, I am. Some aspects of my life are like this. And then others are just completely round the other way. But I have, I have changed it because I'm not, I'm not a flashy zebra. I'm definitely oh, no, not. I think, no, before you change it, I want to tell you, yes, I agree with the zebra because they run at 65 Ks an hour and you are, for those that don't know, oh. an, an awesome runner. I think I spent 
the good two years of our friendship looking at your bun behind your head being like, she's so fast, I can't catch her. The bun bobbing up and down. Yes. And then uh, I'd get to the end and like sometimes sit down on the gutter and you'd be like, come on, let's go. And I'd be like, oh, oh can we just, just give me a minute. So that's why I think a zebra. But also you, did you know that zebra's stripes are unique? They're like fingerprints. Did you know that? Yeah, they're all different. All yeah. different. And and yeah. that's I think that that is something about you when you talk about that walking contradiction where I see that contradiction is you sit so well in the strategy space in business like you can have those big landscape conversations but you do all the detail and you're the end five to ten percent of any project so most people sit at one or the other and you sit so beautifully at both ends oh that's that's very nice to say I do like to see a project through to the end. I will say on the running though, yeah, you definitely wouldn't be watching me now. I'd be miles behind. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I did my first run in 11 months yesterday and I posted on Instagram. I was like, longest run in 11 months. The amount of people that were like, yay, how far? And then I was like, oh no, please don't ask. It was, wait for it, two and a half Ks. That's so, good. That's well, good when you haven't run. That's yeah, exactly. Amazing. And so people might be listening to this thinking two and a half Ks is a long way. Just to put it in perspective, this time last year on the weekend that's coming up, I did a half Ironman. So that's a 21K run off a 90K bike ride off a 2K swim. So when I say that two and a half Ks was hard yeah. and the longest I've run in 11 months, it, it seems a bit ridiculous. But I was so proud. I was like, yes. I've run it. Oh, I get it. I totally get it. When um, I think I think in some ways that's a really hard thing I've found with running is knowing how far I used to run and how quickly I used to run, and that's been a real a real battle for me in my head when I go out for these runs because I'm not. I'm coming off. Well, look, I say I'm coming off a pregnancy and baby, but you know, my that was a while ago now. Two and a half years old. That's <laughs> what I mean. But in my head, every time I go out for a run and it's hard. There's a little part of me that says you used to be able to do this so easily. So I, mm. I totally get it that it sort of doesn't matter. In some ways it's harder that we've done all that running in the past yeah. because we keep comparing it to yeah. that. Yep. We need to put the headphones in and have a yarn. We've been saying this for about a year as well, but just use that as our chatting time instead of having a yeah. coffee at the kitchen table and yeah. We definitely I'm, should. I'm so interested. You said you didn't, you, you're you not going with a zebra. What are you going with? No, I think because I, I think I decided a zebra is too flashy and I'm, I'm not a flashy person, but I came to the conclusion maybe like a border collie who's just a, gets in there, does their job, bit of a worker. I thought Workaholic. maybe that's Maybe. Well, not a nah. workaholic, but just zebra for sure. hard. No. Nah. Border collies are too but mainstream. You know, everyone knows what a border collie is. They have a similar personality to so many other. Like you're definitely a zebra. Oh, in many ways I feel quite mainstream though. I feel like an average sort of person. So I, I don't feel worthy of the zebra stripes. <laughs> well, I'm going to buy you a zebra's jacket that you <laughs> wear out you know when you go clubbing so much as a mother of three I can guarantee you (laughs) but there is one coming in the mail and we would like a photo on our Facebook group challenges for changes for anyone listening when she gets that zebra jacket we want to see a picture I will do and then it's straight in the dress up (laughs) box with the kids (laughs) and the other question Strat that I ask people is whether you had a favorite room in the house and what was it Oh, that's growing a really up, interesting one. Yeah, yeah, growing up. It's funny because Dom and I were just talking last night about childhood memories and things like that. For me, childhood revolved around being outside. So I don't know if it's so much a room. We didn't spend a lot of time in our bedrooms. We were outdoors kids and all of my memories are of being in the backyard, riding bikes, having boat races. Like alcohol boat races or like, you know. <laughs> What age are we talking? <laughs> no, 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 no. Definitely not. Definitely not in my household. No, down um, racing them down the gutters with like our neighbours. Those old school, big, deep gutters. <sighs> we had those on one gone side of those days. Street. Gone are the days of seeing They're kids gone. in the street yeah. playing cricket or boat races. Don't, I, yeah. I can't remember the last time I saw a group of kids in the street playing. It's a different. It's a different world now. But back back then in Beechworth in Mallee Street, it was after rain and the gutters were pumping. It was boat races. They were on. You're the second person that I've interviewed that said when I've asked about the favourite room, actually outside. And it's such a nice thing 
to take away from your childhood to think about all because it's so active and fun and laughing and you know there's usually a bit of mischief there as well did you get up to mischief yeah. or was that your siblings? oh yeah look I don't know I don't know if mischief but definitely I'm I'm from a huge family and all of my childhood memories involve the family involve my siblings I'm one of six kids so yeah we had a lot of fun yeah. We had a lot of fun. I guess um, I will just add, though, if it was to be a room in the house, it, it would be my bedroom. I was a huge reader as a kid and I guess sort of growing up I spent, and I don't know if this is to do with being from a big family, but, yeah, mum used to talk about when I was in a book, she just she just left me to it. I could be days just you know, I would just read that book in bed or I would just surface for food and then I'd go back and read. Oh, doesn't that sound like Big luxury reader. now you have three kids? Oh, like- I couldn't tell you the last time I read a book. I'm looking forward to having the headspace and just not being exhausted at night to be able to pick up a book. I, I can't tell you how excited I am for that. That's what I was going to ask you about. So you are a nerd burger like me. I think that's one of the other <laughs> things yes, that correct. we connect with is yeah, um, for sure. we, we can't get enough of learning and growth and study. And, you know, it's very common conversation between us is in, oh, you won't believe what course I found or I'm thinking about doing a degree. I mean, last I got a phone call last night from um, Charles Sturt saying, so you inquired about the Masters of Counselling. And I was like, did I? I mean, I've already got a counselling degree, but it's just that like passion and love for learning. And so I've been looking yeah. up all the universities in Australia and trying to see what degree I could do whilst running three businesses and having three kids. And But I think about you when I think about that. So do you want to just take us through your kind of chapters with your study? Yeah, absolutely. I am definitely a nerd burger, definitely love learning. And I I don't know that I will ever lose that. But I also don't know that Dom will how he'll take it if I turn around and say I want to do something else. <laughs> another so, 20 yes. grand, please. I'm going to do another <laughs> master's course. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. So straight out of school, I went and did a Bachelor of Education in PE, basically. Yes, yeah, so I spent four years doing that. And I also tacked on in my last year an honours. And I did that in the area of exercise physiology. I was pretty keen on that um, back then. And we did we did a really cool thing. I looked at, yeah, basically predicting variable for best performance of 5k runners Mm. following that I went and taught for a few years in high schools uh, in both Victoria and then in Armidale in New South Wales when we moved up there do you know I don't know that about you did you teach in a high school here I did I did a fair bit of casual teaching around Gyra and Negs Taz yeah have you told me this before and I've forgotten yeah probably (laughs) a few times (laughs) probably yeah yeah no I think we would have because around the Negs stuff ah I did yeah. not. It has not sunk in. Wow. Yeah. I also had English as my second area, which plays into that walking contradiction thing. It was a really unusual sort of combination of the PE and English teacher. But you can see that when you talk about your childhood, like you spent all your time outside or you're in the room reading and that makes sense. Yeah, and that the, I loved the balance that it gave as a teacher as well, sort of mixing the classroom stuff with the outdoors. Yeah, it was it was brilliant. I really enjoyed that. Once we moved to Armadale, took a little bit of a a different direction. I decided that yeah, addicted to study, I wanted to do something else. So I did start a PhD. Or when I say start, I got I got a fair way through my PhD looking into health literacy, in particular health literacy, the skills and the knowledge we should be teaching through our schools. And I really, I really, really enjoyed that until sort of life got in the way, kids, Dom's cancer diagnosis, which I know we'll talk about in a minute, sort of gave me time to reflect on that. And I decided perhaps after a fair break, that's not what I wanted to spend my time on. And then you got an awesome job. And then I got an awesome job. That's when you came in. Um, It was literally the day... After I rang my supervisor and said, no, I think I'm really going to quit the PhD. And then literally the next day you rang and said, would you be interested in doing some work? So I sort of feel like it was meant to be. I love when you tell this story because I think back to it and think, why did I call you? Like we'd played a bit of netball together. I'd seen you in the supermarket when you fainted that day. Yeah. Um, God, that, we're standing there to, <laughs> oh, next God. to the oranges having a chat and then you just drop on the ground. I and know. the amount of people that are like, Oh, and I was like, oh, oh, I don't know what to yeah. do. <laughs> what first yeah. aid training? I forgot it all. And then I think someone mentioned to me, uh, maybe Chelsea, someone mentioned that you might be looking for some work. And I thought, oh, I'll just give you a call. And then bang, that was the start of this amazing, beautiful friendship and professional friendship, I think. 
Yeah, pretty pretty amazing, I think. Until you left. I know. We'll gloss <laughs> over that. Um, <laughs> to move to Melbourne, we might say. You left because you were To move to Melbourne. Yes. yes. Yeah, absolutely. Which brings me to what I'm doing at the minute. I'm just about to finish my master's in public health and I'm, I'm really have a focus on health promotion and I'm absolutely loving it. I love everything that I've learned and I feel like it might all seem different to everyone, but it really is connected. So passionate about health. I'm passionate about wellbeing. And I feel like this master's has tied it all together, has really given me direction in sort of how I want to spend my time and, and where I want to fly in my career. So almost finished my last trimester Yay! What? Oh my God, I have to fly to Melbourne when you finish this one. This is a big one because you've had how many lockdowns? I can't even count. I feel like it was eight or nine, could have been more. It was so. Every time I rang you, like, us, we're in lockdown again. I was like, oh my God. Oh, it's been so challenging. It's been the most ridiculous time to start, you know, study. But yeah, it's been a pandemic degree. Will you, if I fly to Melbourne when you finish, will you wear the zebra jacket? This is what everyone (laughs) is wondering right now. Do you promise to commit to wearing the zebra jacket if it comes on the plane Uh, with me? It depends how many cocktails you um, lather me up with. Nope, sober. When we walk out the door. From the beginning of the night until the tail end. I can rock I can rock that zebra jacket for I sure. I could do a zebra onesie. It might be a bit easier to find, I feel. Um, but <laughs> either way, I will bring it with me on the trip. You will find something. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It's it's been a journey. The home oh, the home stripe. Yeah. You know, and and to be studying a master's with kids in lockdown, just and after when we go into this, after the few years you had leading into this, it's just I take my hat off to you I like it shows your discipline and your determination and your ability to complete things I don't know if that can get summed up in one word <laughs> it's given me a lot of gray hair it has yeah look <laughs> gray hairs is that the word <laughs> that, determination, that could be it gray hairs. <laughs> yeah yeah look I'm so glad I've done it I probably wouldn't recommend it to others I've survived just but it's just launched me into where I want to spend my time. Try attitude performance. We are yeah, going wow. to, we are really hoping by then we are in a position where you can come on with us um, again because, you know, everything you've been studying just absolutely is the framework behind what we're trying to achieve in that company. So oh, it'll be stay awesome. tuned, everyone, for this let's and it, to see let's more make it of Strat. Mm. So Strat, what, what I'd really wanted to have a chat with you about today is in 2016, your husband was diagnosed with bowel cancer at a really young age. I know we're getting into the heavier, deeper stuff now, but I was just wondering whether you could go back to the start of that story and, and take us through your experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess to paint a picture, Dom was in his, um, was 30, I think. I'm not, yeah, 30 years old. So really quite young. We had a little one, little Eva was not even one year old. Yeah. And Dom, he'd been having some symptoms for a little while. Yeah. And then uh, in May of 2016, he went in for a colonoscopy and the outcome was that he had bowel cancer, a fairly large cancer was growing. And that sort of it spiraled us into, I guess, yeah, his cancer journey that really, it really did consume us over the next couple of years. Pretty major thing to be hit with as a young person. Um, yeah. And bowel cancer for a young male at 30 is, is extremely rare, right? It's something we kept, every doctor that we sort of saw, the first thing they would ask is, there, you know, is there a family history of it? No, no, no family history. And yeah, every, sort of most medical professionals then were like, oh, that's really rare. That's really unusual, which we sort of, yeah, that, that statement in itself grew to be really unhelpful. I sort of get that it's unusual. I get that it's rare, but yeah, that wasn't entirely a helpful thing to say. It was pretty major for us at the time. I remember sitting in the room and I don't know, we, I'd had this sense, you know, and so I'd dropped off Eva at a friend's house because I thought, no, no, this, this just going into that, I sort of, we just had this sense that it was into something the big. You mean? No, this was um, this was following the colonoscopy, yeah. the, the follow-up. Had the doctor called you and said you need to come in or it was just already a standard booked? No, it was, um, it's pretty standard that you'd have a follow-up appointment, but they'd, they'd written a little note that said, call, call the office on Monday and make, mm. you know, make an appointment. So I think immediately from that point, we we're already nervous and cancer had been thrown up as, 
a possibility. You know, we were working with a great, a brilliant GP who'd sort of said it could be Crohn's, it could be something else. And cancer was thrown as an option, but fairly rare given Dom's age, his bloods had all been clear and that sort of stuff Family as well. So, was none. yeah. Yeah. So it was on our radar, but yeah, just going in, we sort of knew. And yeah, then when we hit with it, you know, sorry to say that you've, you've got cancer. And I don't know, from that moment on, I think I was just in logistics mode for the next the next few years. Dom was in shock. Yeah. And I remember having to then front up and go and pick up Eva. It was, it was hard and it was, it was a real whirlwind then. We decided, cause we're up in Armadale, the rest of our family is down in Victoria. So we were a fair distance away. So we made the decision to come down to Victoria for treatment. Is that because, because of family or was that because there was better treatment down there? Look, it was a combination of the two. We'd been advised we couldn't have it done in Armadale, what needed to be done anyway. So it seemed like an easy decision then that we would go down to Melbourne where we could sort of have the support of our families, things we we had to be out of home anyway. Mm. So things moved really quickly at first. Dom was, he sort of was admitted to hospital a few times. and Had you had a prognosis at this stage? Like had they said you know, this is what we expect to come or was it just straight into we need surgery, this is when the date is and there's not really a lot more information we can tell you until we open him up? They wanted to re-scan Dom, so redo the colonoscopy, redo all the scans. B- because they were questioning whether it was or not or? No, just just the extent of it. I think they just, yeah. I think they just like to do their own scans just so they really know what they're dealing with themselves I don't they weren't questioning it just just to get a real you know a picture of of what it was so Sandy the surgeon was absolutely brilliant we dealt with him from the start and the whole way through and he was he was absolutely fantastic he was very sort of matter of fact about it all and he sort of said the prog it's it'll be a journey but the prognosis is good um Mm -hmm. for bowel cancer yeah just given the position of it though they were a little bit worried um yeah, it's sort of, you know, it it's not it's not the most glamorous of sort of topics, but they were really worried about a blockage earlier on and when they went to do the colonoscopy, they actually couldn't get a full view because it was, it was fully blocked. blocked at that stage. Yeah, it's sort of it can move in and out the bowel. Yeah, so that sort of said to them, you know, we need to we it's need to rough. move on this. Yeah. And so I guess I guess some of the most confronting things happened straight away. They were worried about rupturing the bowel because it was blocked. So pretty quickly on, he had the colonoscopy bag put on, mm-hmm. which is pretty a pretty confronting thing for someone in their 30s. And look, hats off to Dom. He handled that amazingly the whole way through. He never, he never complained about it. I don't think I could sort of handle it with such grace, but he was yeah, he handled that so well and he never let it stop him. From there, Dom then commenced six weeks of daily radiation and chemo. That was a really, really hard time for us. We were sort of living out of our home and I'm a real homebody. Um, I found that really challenging and, yeah, that was about the time we found out that I was pregnant um, yeah, we, whenever you tell me that, I have I know this story so well. But even when you tell me that now, I just get goosebumps. Like your husband's just been diagnosed with cancer. You have a one year old at home, and then he's in having treatment, and you find out you're pregnant. Like, look, we were really grateful for it at the time because Dom was having radiation um, to his pelvic area. There was a high possibility that we wouldn't be able to have more children after mm. that. Yeah, so we had to you know, really confronting. We had to go down the route of, you know, freezing s- sperm and stuff like that, which it we, we just did it. I don't think it was particularly handled well. I don't feel like we were really prepared for it. It was just something we did because yeah. we had to do. And like you said, logistics, it was just logistics. It's like you do, this and, you do this and then you do this and it's all task. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, um, yeah, so in one way we were really grateful for the pregnancy then because, yeah, we were like, well, this this could be it. You know, Eva could could be it. And I was from a huge family and it was always it was always the intention to have more kids. So, yeah, in a, in a really strange way, despite the timing, it was sort of exciting. Until you got sick. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, I have morning absolutely – I have horrendous morning sickness. And, we and were, when we say horrendous, we mean 
horrendous like horrendous absolutely we were really lucky we stayed at uh the peter mac had just opened and they've got apartments there and we were really lucky to be able to stay there because Don was having daily radiation in one of the family apartments and I remember leaving the apartment one day and you'd you know, in a hospital, uh, a cancer hospital, you see a lot of people not looking at their best. And I remember one day Dom came in and he said, you'll laugh at this. I was having a chat at someone with someone and Dom had been saying how he was there for treatment. And they thought, because I looked so crook all the time. (laughs) You were the patient. Yeah, they assumed (laughs) that I was the patient. But um, yeah, that gives you a little bit of insight into our our six weeks of that, Dom was having daily chemo, daily radiation. And yeah, I was in the early stages of um, <laughs> pregnancy, of pregnancy. morning sickness, yeah. a one-year-old. Like I just, I can't even imagine what your life would have looked like then. And it just kept going, right? Like even as he had surgery and like, you've yeah. got some crazy stories Yeah, it was, it was full on. Look, things were going really well at the end of his chemo and radiation, uh, fairly standard. Dom had some scans and they found on the scans a mass outside of the bowel. They weren't sure that it was cancer, but they couldn't rule it out. We then had to wait after that for Dom's body to recover before he was going to have the surgery to have his bowel resection. So basically they cut out the section of the bowel, sew it back together. I still put up that time period between having those scans and then finding something on the scans to when the surgery happened as one as the one of the toughest periods yeah it was filled with a lot of unknown and also there was nothing we could do I think I can't remember exactly Don will know the dates but it was maybe three months that we had to wait and if it if it was a cancer that they found in this other spot it wasn't good you know we did everything we were told not to do we googled Dr. Google Dr. Google which yeah is you shouldn't do that. You know, you shouldn't well, do that. Well, you say that though. You say not to doc. We talk about this all the time with all of the medical stuff. It's that waiting game. It is that not knowing. And for you and I, Strat, we, we need information because information is power. So the Dr. Google is helpful because it's like, well, give me everything. Tell me the yeah. worst and I can reverse yeah. engineer it back to where I need to be now. But it is it is horrible because when you're reading through Dr. Google, it takes you down one lane. Like we've already talked about it. It was rare for Dom to be the age that he was to get what he had. Yeah. So he's, it's such a unique scenario. It's why these doctors spend so long studying because there are so many elements to weigh up. But on Dr. Google, we're only weighing up one, bowel cancer at 30, you know, like statistics or yeah yeah it's not helpful there's very few you know it it wasn't helpful it wasn't helpful for me and I know at night time was when I did a lot of my googling daytime was full on Eva was probably one by this stage so running around after a one-year-old Plus, I was pregnant, plus, Traveling you know. Traveling from the hospital. Yeah, taking care of Dom and that side of things. It was full on. But night times were hard for me. They were so hard. The quiet, if Dom was in hospital, it just felt so lonely. And that was the time when my my mind raced, you know. Uh, and that's the time when I would Google and, you know, the number of times, yeah, I would just cry and cry and cry at night time. It was like... People were telling me, oh, how are you holding it, you know, so well together during the day? But I was, I was during the day and then it was all coming undone, you know, when I would crawl into an empty bed at night. And wonder wonder what the future looks like. How yeah. did you manage that weight? Like for, for anyone listening that's going through that waiting period, how did you manage that? Like or, or looking back now, what are some of the things that you know to do when you – because you still have waiting periods now when you've got more testing and – Yeah, definitely. So – I'm not sure I've got any advice for that waiting. It's it's hard, but there was certainly there was certainly things along the way, you know, that whole journey that did help. I'm a fiercely independent person and probably for the first time in my life I really had to rely on other people, people to help look after Eva, just people to even just to rally my spirits. So, um for me, I did a lot of asking for help, um which yeah, was which was hard, which was hard for you know for someone like me. I did a lot of asking. Um, our parents, our families, did a lot for us. Our friends did a lot. I remember calling mum. It was at two a.m. This is sort of through through the stage a little bit. I was ready to pop with Hamish. I think I was thirty nine weeks pregnant, and Dom had had a really rough trot. He was in hospital. 
Eva had gastro and I remember I'd, I'd, she'd already, I'd cleaned her up a few times and it was 2am in the morning. Eva had just vomited all through her cot. I think this was like my third change of sheets. I will never forget that moment. I rang mom at 2am. I just said, I can't, I can't do this, you know? Um, and she was on a plane by 6am and (laughs) she, I know, I know it makes me emotional just thinking about it. And by 9am, you know, Beechworth to Armidale is a long way away. I rang her at 2am by 9am. She was on my doorstep there just when we needed her. So we certainly didn't do it alone. We had people come help take Dom, help, um, you know, give Eva a break, take Eva out for a play or to a playground. We had People in both Victoria and Armadale like delivering fruit baskets and presents and yeah. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are and you'd like to learn more or engage further with our podcast community, you can do this in our Facebook group. Just search for Challenges That Change Us on Facebook or look in the link in our show notes. In this group, we'll be sharing extra content and giving further background to our episodes so I hope to see you there. But for now, let's get back to the episode. You know, it's I, I've just got to wipe away the tears. I no matter how many times I hear this story, it's still always just it's a really shit situation and one that no one should ever have to go through. And it doesn't matter how many times you I've heard you say it, it still really hits me in my heart because I'm just like, God, I on yeah. so many levels, like you were doing it so tough. Was there some help that was really helpful and other help that was unhelpful? And I know and we're not trying to talk about whether you're ungrateful or not. I more mean where my intention for this question comes from is that when people are going through something that is so personal, sometimes the help can feel overwhelming or it can not quite be where it needs to be. Like do you have any like advice for anyone that's wanting to help someone that's going through this? Like should they be checking in first or just do whatever you can or – I can't speak for everyone, but I was certainly grateful for all the help. And I think all of our family, all of our friends were really respectful and did things that were genuinely helpful. Things like dropping off meals. I think people want to help. And like every message, every everything was genuinely really helpful. But people were respectful as well. They wouldn't mm. just pop around. They would text and check if it was okay. Yeah, check if it was okay and, and that sort of thing thing as well. So I think for me, that was a really great lesson in, yeah, I was the kind of person fiercely independent, wouldn't ask for help. You know, I can do this. I can manage this. This was a time in my life when I couldn't manage it and people wanted to help. So maybe just, just letting people help. But I I think I was lucky. People were really respectful and I I don't know. It's acts of service is my love language. So Mm. it's still, it still makes me really emotional to think about the lengths that some people did, you know, we were away from Armadale, I think for the better part of about six months and people looked after our lawn, they collected our mail. We came home to a freezer full of food and our beautiful friends had, you know, one of our whole portion of the garden had died. They had gone, spent all this money and replanted the garden. I was, I was so touched then. And it's still, you can hear it in my voice. It's still, it meant, it meant a lot. It's um I think we should have had tissues for this. Um <laughs> I, I had the water. Water. <laughs> at no, no point did I think both no. of us if people could see have tears streaming down our faces. And I didn't know you at this stage. So <laughs> this is yeah, like no, these tears are just from us. listening. And you know, I yeah. think about that when I was sick and had my stroke. I, the thing that I remember that people did, there were two things. One was the meals as well. And, you know, it, it takes on a different tangent. But the second thing that really blew my mind was I'm quite messy. And I came home and people had bought these colored tubs. I think it was Natural <laughs> was one of them. And they put like the kids' labels on them and they'd folded everything. And it was so, I was so overwhelmed with just gratitude for the lengths that people went to. To yeah. and and they said they said that they'd had a discussion in the lounge room. One of them was like, I, I think we should get these tubs and get this organized. And the next person was like, No, she's really messy. She'll freak out. <laughs> if the house is tidy. She She'll be like, Whose house is this? <laughs> yeah. But it yeah. is, it's that that's the beauty of living in a small rural town. I'm sure it happens in the cities, but Armadale community especially goes over and above and beyond when someone in the community is unwell or needs the help. They just rally around in this phenomenal state of support. Yeah. Oh, it's it's absolutely amazing. And 
And I, I do believe people genuinely want to help as well. You know, yes. like our families, there's a certain amount of feeling a little bit helpless when someone's going through this. And they, they were just amazing. We had, you know, sort of, it, it felt like we alternated one week, my parents were down the next week, you know, Dom's parents were down. We were surrounded by a lot of love, genuinely a lot of love and a lot of, um, a lot of help. And it, yeah, it got us through not just that period, but the period beyond as well, you know, when you sort of, when all said and done and I'm still touched to this day. Mm. And, and I, yeah, I hope that, yeah, that people realize sort of how much that meant. Mm. I don't know for you, but I always feel like I can never give back to the same level that people gave. Like I just, I always am like, what can I be doing? But it never feels like it's ever going to amount to the support that we received at that time. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's hard to repay. Mm. And when you look back now over those few years, what was the hardest part for you? I think that period of the unknown was hard, sort of what what I spoke about before um, when they found a mass, which it turned out to not be cancer. And we're lucky that Dom's had a really good prognosis. That was a really hard period. I don't know. Also, when all was said and done, because, yeah, we're, we're, we're so lucky. Dom's had a really great outcome, responded really well to surgery. and But even that moment after when everything stopped and it's all finished, you almost feel at a little bit of a loss. How do, how do you move on with life now that we don't have daily doctor's appointments? And I know Dom certainly had a period where that sort of hit him and that was really difficult for us for us all as a family to sort of how do, how do we move on with life now that sort of that part is over, you know, and we were so lucky. Because it takes up so much time and energy. And in some ways you feel like you should be so happy and so grateful because it's it was over for a while, you know, but it didn't necessarily match up to how we were actually feeling. You don't have time to grieve and during it, you know, there's still you lost years of your life and I don't mean you did nothing in that time. I mean that you were, like you said, you were on logistics and Dom was in survival mode. So nothing else in the world took precedence over what you were going through at that time. And even with your kids, like missing a year of Eva's life, I don't know if that's how you feel. I might be putting words in your mouth, but you know, like. Yeah, it was intense. I think part of that, look, I probably almost killed myself trying to give her a normal, I say childhood, but she was, she was one, you know, when we were in the thick of it, one and two sort of, I remember feeling an enormous sense of guilt, feeling stretched so thin between being a wife and being in the hospital support dom and being a mum and being pregnant, being pregnant, <laughs> pregnant yeah. and vomiting and nauseous. and <laughs> But this guilt, but Eva, we were so lucky. Eva just chilled kid. She learned to walk in the hospital. I remember one just feeling so rotten at one point. She'd slept in like, I don't know, it was seven different beds, seven different houses in in nine days or something. And I remember just thinking, you know, just that guilt, but she it's was not how it's meant to be. Yeah. We're so grateful. She was a great sleeper. You know, um, in some ways we were really lucky that she was such a cruisy kid that, you know, that rolled with it. And, and hopefully, hopefully fingers crossed remains fairly unaffected by it. And did you find post this period, these couple of years that every time you went back to the doctor, it was kind of like, you're just waiting for the bomb to drop. Did you feel like that? Yeah, there was certainly certainly a lot of anxiety leading into surveillance and for those yeah, people who have been through it would know it it's pretty it's a pretty constant reminder. So after Dom had his surgery and then he had um, more chemo after that sort of as a preventative measure and testing was basically 3 monthly after that. So you sort of got through it and then just felt like you had a week reprieve and then all all of a sudden you're already nervous, already anxious about the next lot of testing. I think that does ease as time goes on, but yeah, nothing will ever, I think I will always get that same knot in my stomach walking into any hospital because it's the smell that hits you. Yeah. Is, is always going to be, you know, not, not great memories is always going to be filled with a bit of anxiety for me. And Eight years on from the first diagnosis, how often is Dom being tested now? Is that your maths? Is that really, oh, is it eight years really? I don't know. <laughs> no, it probably is, yeah. Oh, no, it might be six. No, yeah. But for anyone that doesn't know, Strat pulls me up every day of the week when we have a conversation about my exaggeration skills. It's definitely not eight years. I really thought it was. I did my maths as you were talking, but yeah. no, it's not. I did them poorly. 
No, no, we, we, <laughs> sort, of ta- <laughs> we sort of talk in terms of the five years. Um, for us, it's the time after it's all sort of over. That's the important one. And I zoned out to the question there. I was too busy picking up go, on your we maths. We might go back. To, I really did do the maths in my head. I really did. I could tell. I could tell. <laughs> I was not. I was right on track, and of course, I messed up. I was, up. I was like, I was like, hang on. Eva was. Eva was almost one. She's six now. I'm like, how does that? <laughs> it's close enough. It's close enough. Oh, and I bet this doesn't get cut out. Um, uh, <laughs> so I was asking about how often he's getting tested now. We've passed the magic five year. So it sort of slowly stretches out. So it's sort of three month, then six monthly. I'm not sure I even know now. I think, I think it's still yearly colonoscopies, which in itself one every year is plenty. I've never had one done, but, yeah, they're pretty um, – the prep is nice. pretty – pretty not nice yeah um so I think I think we're at one once a year which is still a lot like for anyone listening would yeah. be like whoa but for you it feels like you've got probably so much space in between and <laughs> absolutely absolutely and it just um you know there's this part that's reassuring having him yeah. tested every year because if they find something they can They're they can onto get it onto it but his his prognosis is is really good he's doing really well and he's just changing jobs yeah new job he's done two weeks I think stepping up as the What's his role? Yeah, senior lecturer of oh, exercise and sports psychology. I hope Pressure I've got there. that right. I'm like, you might not have got that. That's another, uh, yeah. that's another um, connection point between you and I. We're always like, oh, I don't know what they do. Um. Yeah. No, no, I'm, it's close enough, I think. <laughs> and when you look back at this whole experience, how has it shaped you today? Well, look, I think um, – I think it will always be part of our story. I think letting people in a little bit maybe has been a really great thing to come out of it. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like in a lot of ways it did strengthen connections with with people as well, you know, our friends who helped us out, our family who were, you know, there through everything. It It can't help but sort of strengthen that. I'm not sure that I really know how it's changed me as a person because it's it's just part of it's part of our story now. But I do feel like there is the potential to do some work in that area. And when I say that, I'm, you know, you and I have always talked about doing something in the medical system. I, I feel quite passionately about how the um, the medical system looks after people who are in my position, families and um, partners of people. I feel like there's so much support for patients, perhaps less support for their support people. So, yeah, maybe, who knows, I, I feel like. There's still unfinished yeah. business there for yeah, how we can like we could help others. Help and support and, and do some work in that area. We've talked about having, you know, <laughs> we've talked about a lot, but um, apps, like an app <laughs> where you can um, go through the list of questions to ask your doctor. Like so often I remember when we first started on the medical journey, we'd just be like, oh, we'll just go in and see what they say. And then yeah. you get in there and you be in there for such a short time often and you walk out and be like, now I don't know how to reach them. I've got all these questions from what they told me. You know, one of my biggest tips to people going through it is is bring a support person, ideally someone like that might not be in the emotion with it as well because you hear so much information in those specialist appointments and when something triggers you, you your brain can switch off and you not hear the rest of the information. It always blows my mind when my husband and I walk out of a specialist appointment with two completely different (laughs) stories and neither of us are right like then we ring the doctor and we're like and they're like no that I didn't say either of that you know and we're both well educated we've been in this medical system now for we're going on 10 years so we're not newbies you know it's not our first rodeo but we still find that so hard my last neuro appointment I actually took a chiropractor in with me and my husband I was like I'm gonna have someone clinical here with me (laughs) just to listen and hear it and and ask questions from a different perspective get the details person in there Don was definitely the emotional one and I was the business I was asking the questions jotting things down yeah if you can take take someone with you yeah Definitely. Bit harder in COVID times with all of the new protocols. And also ask, I encourage people to ask, how do I get in contact if I have questions after this meeting, you know, because you might be able to send an email or phone or I think sometimes we feel like there's such a huge gap between us and the specialist and that contact point. So it's really important that you know where you can go to ask the questions because guaranteed you'll walk away from that 
consult with more questions, more unanswered questions. Oh, absolutely. And write them down for the next, yeah, so that you can get in contact or, or for the next appointment. Yeah, we've got to get onto that app, Hals. Mm, mm, we'll get there. We'll get there. We've got a bit to do between now and June. <laughs> But the app will, or we'll just do it through podcasts. You know, that's one of the reasons why this podcast came about when I was really sick last year and I was like, what can I do if I can't work? And I was like, I can podcast and I can talk to Strat about all of these medical appointments. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Any Anything where you can just talk to people. Mm. That doesn't well, sound like you. <laughs> I remember Nikki once said to me, her husband was going through cancer. Unfortunately, she lost him at a really young age and my mum had just started going through cancer and I was talking to her about you know this is a whole world I knew nothing about it feels like this is all new and it's it's so encompassing but how did I not know about it before and how do I deal with this and she gave me the best bit of advice that I still pass on to people wherever possible and that was to give it energy when it needs energy Mm. and to conserve energy when it doesn't and what I mean by that is if you're going to doctor's appointments you need to give it energy if your husband's having chemo you need to give it energy but if there are moments like if you're with your one-year-old in the park and you can't actually change anything and you can't actually do anything in that moment try and see if you can not give it energy at that time yeah can conserve sort of for when mm. you really Cause otherwise need to. it's just with you all the time and it just gets heavier and heavier and heavier Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's that's really good advice. I think it stops you from burning out then too. Just It's such an emotional time. If you sort of felt at all times, I think you'd, you know. And it often explode. feels like if, you, if we describe it in running, when you're in it, it feels like you're in a 100-meter sprint. But if you think about it, you're actually in like an ultra marathon. But at the time, like everything's pumping and your brain's going and the anxiety's high and it feels like it's like everything's so important in the immediate right now. Oh, everything. It consumes your world at the time. I, I think that's one thing I really wasn't prepared for it. Everything moves so fast, but there are so many times like with Dom's treatment where uh, there were just pauses, you know. It's like we know we have to have surgery, but you've got to wait three months for your body to recover from this. So they're hard as well in, in some in some ways they're they're really hard because you know when you're in it you go 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 and you've sort of got something to look for but there are all these pauses that you have to consider and they're the times when you really have to make sure you don't let your head get too far ahead of you mm. and and one of the ways would be to bring it back to what are the things you can control versus the things you can't control and one of the really nice sayings once you've got your list of things you can't control is I choose to accept that I can't control this and I'll let it go. You know, you can't control what the results of the test is going to be or you can't control if COVID's going to come and you can't go in. Like just it, it can be really helpful getting clear on what what you can do. Oh, definitely. And let, yeah, try as hard as you can to let go of the things that you can't mm. control and just, just to roll with it because there will be so many things out of your control. Hmm. And normally I ask at the end of an interview whether there's someone in your life that makes your belly laugh, but I feel like I want to ask you, was there a time through all of this that you caught yourself or found yourself laughing, like really belly laughing? Was there some light moments through those couple of years? I don't know about belly laughing, but I think the moment that I mentioned earlier, Eva learning to walk at the hospital is we were going through all this treatment. We had this amazing one-year-old who was just a joy and sort of still normal through all of this, you know. It doesn't stop normal things like learning how to walk. And mm -hmm. I will never forget, you know, going up there because, um, yeah, it's not a great place to learn how to walk in a hospital or <laughs> have a kid crawling on the ground. But, yeah, there was this area. At least it's clean. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. And we used to catch, you know, catch the elevator up and there's this big empty space and, yeah, we just watch her practice. So, Moments like that, yeah, still still through all of that, yeah, I guess the power of kids, isn't it, just to take your yeah. mind off what you're going through and see the joy in the small things. And, you know, it's, it's lovely hearing about Eva because when I think about what makes your belly laugh, I often think about your other child, Hamish, because, <laughs> mate, seriously, some of the photos I get sent or some of the stories that you tell of that guy, um, yeah. I, one of my all-time favourites was when he was in his sister swimmers on top of the slide 
outside. Oh, Do you yeah. remember that? And then the swimmers oh, were yeah. off and he was naked. Like just that yeah. that guy makes me belly laugh whenever you send yeah. through a picture. He's a real character. He makes us he makes us laugh on the daily. Yes. Super, you know. They they talk about your one and two being chalk and cheese and they a hundred percent are. Um Hamish keeps us on our toes every day, but yeah, he makes us laugh every day as well. He's he's a a real cracker. What do we say? You, you want to capture that um, character, but you it's going to be so hard to parent. Like the conversations we'll have through teenage years, I'm sure, will look very different to <laughs> I'm belly yeah. laughing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like, ah, you're in for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. I know we've talked about it for a long time, but actually finding the time and making that commitment and openly talking about what you've been through with Dom and those couple of years, I just – it it still surprised me how moved I was today listening to that. It's um it's always nice. I think I was saying to the, uh, this to you. I think before we started rolling, but it's not something that I sort of talk about often. Even at the time, I didn't. So it's yeah, it's it's lovely to share this side of things, um, healing in some ways, just to sort of. Yeah, speak it out. And to look back and, and feel like it hopefully is getting that little bit further away each day, you know? Oh, it definitely is. In in some respects, uh, it feels like a lifetime ago. In, in other ways, it feels like we'll never forget. But it is amazing. You do, you do sort of move on. Mm. Can you all tell how much I love this woman? She has endured so much, yet she has such an incredible outlook on life. Strat talks about the nights being so hard. If you're going through something similar, there will be a time in your day or night that is the most challenging, and I just want you to look after yourself in that space. Mine was always the second morning after the news. It's like day one, I'm all over the logistics and getting everything done, and then I wake up on day two, and it is this overwhelm of reality in that very moment. I just want to roll over and pretend that the world doesn't exist. Strat talks about quite a few strategies that you might be able to tuck away for a rainy day, and I thought it might be worth mentioning two more that has really helped my family get through some of those tough medical moments. The first is to let people know about your good days and your bad days. If people only ever see you when you're up and coping, then it's really difficult for them to understand how challenging your journey is and work out the best way to support you. They may just think you're cruising along when actually you're far from that. Secondly, if you have something going on, have a communication touch point. For example, allocate one person or a platform like WhatsApp where people can get updates or they can go to ask questions. This allows for the immediate carer to still conserve their energy for the person who is sick, whilst the family members and friends can know exactly where to go to get those updates. Otherwise, what happens is, is the person going through it or the care person gets an overwhelming amount of text messages and they often feel like they need to respond to each and every one of them at the cost of their own personal rest, their own personal energy or the care for the loved one. I hope that helps and we have a great episode coming up next week and I will see you all then. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. 